You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. With geopolitics and conflict dominating the headlines, it is easy to forget that the Middle East is home to hundreds of millions of people who are, for the most part, going to work, going to school, raising families, shopping, and so on. This is not to deny the political complexity, but it does call on us to try to understand the Middle East from an economic and business perspective. For example, can the region create enough jobs to employ its young people? Can governments transition their economies away from dependence on oil and state-owned enterprises? Or how will the big family-owned groups that have dominated the private sector compete against a new generation of entrepreneurial, tech-savvy competitors? To discuss these issues and more, I met up in Dubai with Ahmed Youssef and Abdallah Iftahi, two McKinsey partners who work with companies across this very big, very complex region. So, uh, Ahmed and uh, Abdallah, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. So I think looking in from the outside, you know, the region, I think, has been through a bit of a rough patch. We've had oil prices considerably below where they were. We've also had a fair bit of instability around the region. Ahmed, what's the mood today? I think if you ask the people that question, you will not get one answer. Because it really depends on the leap of faith that you're ready to take or the kind of the skepticism that you have. So on the one hand, you have people that are actually very bullish about the region because they see the ambitious transformation. They see some of the bold moves. They see some of the big investments. They see a young population that is thriving and wanting to make a a difference. They see a market that actually could be attractive and that is very big. Uh, And there are others that will basically say, Let's actually wait and see because they're skeptical about the geopolitical situation. They're skeptical about uh, the success of the transformation. And they're skeptical about this kind of volatility of uh, economic activity, which is also driven a lot by by oil prices over the last few years. So glass half empty or glass half full? Exactly. And and just to add to that, I think there are some uh, structural challenges that we see today, as well as, you know, some big opportunities. I think on... The challenger side, there is an unemployment rate, which is very high, I think 4x the global average that we see, as well as this youth bulge, which you can see as a, as a big challenge or as a big opportunity. Uh, today, uh, when you see the youth and the opportunities they have, uh, I think they are quite limited, right? Uh, uh, one out of four kids you know, have the opportunity to go to school and then get an opportunity for a job uh, later on, which is a challenge. But that is also a big reason for hope, right, going forward, because the, if, if we find solutions for these youth uh, to be employed, to be educated, these will be the drivers of the economy going forward from a consumption standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, and entrepreneurship. Uh, let's do a little bit of defining. When we talk about the Middle East, when we talk about the region, what are we talking about? And just how big in terms of population and GDP and those kind of things? I mean, the Middle East is used for different definitions. I think some use it for GCC, which are the six countries, UAE, Saudi, Oman, Kuwait, Qatar, and Bahrain. 
some others uh, then uh, you know tagged the MENA, right? Middle East and North Africa, uh, part of it. In our definition, we, we take the Middle East and North Africa and we add Pakistan and Turkey as well because of the strong ties that they have to the, to the region. Uh, and then if we take that definition, we're talking about uh, 700 million uh, population, which is roughly 10% of the global population and 4 trillion of GDP. But for me, the, also the interesting part about the region is the complexity that actually it has. It has some of the world's oldest civilizations, be it, you know, Egypt or Mesopotamia, they were, you know, 3000 before the BC, to some of the youngest countries. And if actually, if you look at the majority of the countries, were created in the, you know, kind of the 20th century, in the middle part of the 20th century, right? Even in its current form, you know, from Turkey to Lebanon, to all the Gulf countries. I mean, the UAE, where we are today, was born in 71. 1971. Gives so this contrast between incredibly old civilizations and youth, but actually quite new institutional structures. And that's why you see bold, risky moves and traditional, conservative, slow moves. So you see always that tension. But that also goes into the diversity of some of the countries that we actually have. So you have some of the richest countries. And if you take even the GDP per capita of the richest country and the GDP per capita of the poorest country, it's almost a hundred times, almost a hundred times. If you think about it in the US, if you look at the richest state to the poorest state, it's around five to seven times. If you look at Europe, all of Europe, not the European Union, Union is around 15 times. We are a hundred times. So that gives you a big sense. You also look at population. You have population at uh, 200 million, Pakistan or 90 million plus Egypt. You have Bahrain at 1.5 million. So you see kind of the contrast between the different countries is actually quite stark. And that's what makes this region very complex because people talk about the Middle East as one setup and it's not. So if I'm a, a CEO looking at the Middle East and thinking about what's my Middle East strategy, is that a concept which even makes sense? If I just got to get very granular about, I need different country strategies. There is um, a typical mistake of thinking about the Middle East as one. And I think Ahmed have shared uh, some of the contrasts that we see here. Uh, and it, it is very important for any CEO or any international organization to think about this region in a much more granular way, right? Country by country, city by city. If I think about Pakistan, every region is very different. If I think about Saudi, the same thing. The regional differences are quite big. So thinking about this region in a granular way is, is a number one step for any strategy that uh, should be uh, set here in the, in, in the region. In addition, uh, I think the local knowledge is extremely, extremely important. Because of this diversity, uh, then it's not about just sending the top talent from these international companies to the region. It's actually about being here, partnering with local partners, uh, family-owned businesses or other institutions to really go deep into the culture, the behavior, the consumers, the way of doing business in each of the different regions or, or countries and make it successful, right? And then tailor any value proposition or uh, offering that any company would have uh, to those uh, granular pockets of value. So it sounds to me as if you're sort of pointing up some kind of failure modes when you look at companies that come from outside the region and don't quite get it right. Would you agree with that, Ahmed? And, and what else, you know, just elaborate a little bit on where, where do companies go wrong? I would agree with that, but let me maybe give a bit of a historical view about this. Over time, a lot of international companies came in and they had only sales kind of operations. So which means everything was produced outside, everything was developed outside. Technology companies, their R&D was 
you know, in the US, in Germany, in South Korea or other places. Manufacturing, same thing, cars are done outside. Consumer goods, same thing, food, products. But now the success factors have actually changed. And the consumers are much more demanding and they're requiring something that is much more tailored to them. You have local competition that is actually starting to produce, you know, be it industrial products or food products and so on. And that requires international companies to be closer and closer to this market. And getting closer to this market for you to be successful, you have to actually know it. You cannot just apply what you've done in other markets and come here. And, and they come in a lot with a lot of misconceptions. You know, first misconception is uh, I come in, I'm going to bring all the capabilities, you just provide me the land and, and just, you know, local connections and, and local banking. Uh, so that's the first thing I urge uh, international companies to think about is to be humble about uh, what they know and what they don't know and actually to respect the knowledge of the local players here. And that would require them actually choosing and spending and investing time to understand who the, lo the, the local players that they need to partner with. So hubris is a failure mode by the sound of it. Yeah. And just to add, I think, one example to what you just mentioned, um, Ahmed, I think this holds true for any industry, so traditional industries, manufacturing, or even new businesses. So if we take the example of uh, Uber, Uber and Karim. Karim is the local uh, ride-sharing company that, is, that was very successful and that was just acquired by, by Uber lately. Uh, I was watching an interview of the CEO of Karim uh, that was talking about what are the distinctive competitive advantages they had here versus Uber. And he mentioned two things. One is that the Uber model in the US, for example, was mainly reliant on Google Maps to map basically the locations and the addresses in the country. And the second, it was purely 100% credit card based. When you come here in the region and then you understand that Google Maps is not that accurate and then you have to build that network from scratch. So that's what Karim did, right? They had like cars going around and, and, and picking up GPS coordinates for every single location of some of these remote areas. Plus uh, cash on delivery, right? If you go to Saudi, specifically cash on delivery is the mode of payment. So it's not credit card. So hence developing all of these processes around that uh, was required. And that gave Karim here a, a big advantage. And hence, you know, um, this is how you know, Uber acquired them. So that's a very concrete example of replicating what worked elsewhere and just bringing the technology and the idea and the concept and just uh, bringing it to the, to the local market here won't work specifically in the Middle East. Does that apply to understanding the, the consumers in the region as well? Is there the, the sort of distinctiveness of consumer taste and so on? What, what do we know about that? The consumers in this region are very diverse as the, the different countries. And I think in our research uh, that we run here in the region at McKinsey, we have seen some common trends as well across the region where we see a consumer behavior and sentiment converging to more of the average global consumer in a sense that the consumers are becoming more and more price conscious, right? Ahmed mentioned a lot of spending power in some of these countries, but even in these countries now we see consumers being much more looking for prices, looking for deals, and so on and so forth. Consumers are also becoming less and less brand loyal. Uh, today they are really looking for innovations, new brands, even cheaper brands. And sometimes when they switch to these brands, actually they like the, the, the opportunity to stay there. We have seen like the number of people that switch to a less uh, pricey brand double right over the, the last few years. And I think those are the trends that we have seen globally, but then now we see more and more uh, of these uh, here in the region. In addition, I think there is a key driver, which is e-commerce. 
So people are looking for more and more convenience. While, you know, five years ago, only five to 10% of people were willing to buy their goods online. Today, that number have gone up to 30, 40%, which is quite significant. That's a big driver of e-commerce in the region. That's why we see all of these deals, Souk, Noon, and others uh, growing. And also, I think there's a, a couple of trends that are really important to keep in mind is that people are becoming more and more health conscious. Uh, and, and that is driven by the government. I think this region is known also for uh, some of the highest obesity rates, for example, right? And, and hence uh, the introduction of the excise tax that was introduced also lately. So that will have an impact on how the consumer are behaving going forward, but also how retailers and consumer companies should adjust locally here uh, in order to win in this market. Something else I read in the research, I think, is, is consumers increasingly concerned to support local businesses. They're looking for local brands. They're looking for local producers as well, which, again, you know, coming from California, which happens to be where I'm based, sounds very familiar. I mean, all of this actually sounds very familiar. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think on that specific point, I think people are becoming more eco-conscious as well. And that's why they're supporting more local brands and so on, especially in the millennials, because for them, I think the ecosystem and sustainability are very, very high on their values of scale. So definitely, I think we see conversions into the global average consumer. And also, I would say some corrections about some misconceptions about the consumer here in the region, that they are they're wealthier, they buy only brands, very not, known brands. Not price sensitive. Not price sensitive and so on. Now, I think all the retailers and consumer companies are operating in, in a more established market. Yeah. I think there's a maturing kind of consumer taste. If, if I look at the consumers, they were almost somewhat insecure or trapped with the view that whatever comes from the West is actually great. So they would just take anything, be it in food, in clothing, in cars, in whatever that is. And if you look at over the last few years, they're, they're now much more exposed because they're all kind of technology savvy. They're exposed to the world in a much bigger way than they used to before. They're becoming much more demanding. And although they want to change and see the change, they're also becoming more and more proud of the traditions, more and more proud of the countries they're from. And therefore, they're demanding much more specialization. And they're demanding much more from consumer companies. And if I just look at basic FMB concepts, and in Kuwait, one of the you know, most interesting markets where you have a number of FMB concepts that were created very local. I don't know what FMB concepts are. Food and beverage. So basically, ah. you know, the McDonald's equivalent or any other Burger King equivalent or, or, or so on. So the, the concepts that are being created in the region, because people are actually proud that this is something that is coming from the region. It's something that is tailored to them. It's not just something that comes again and they, they inherit. Because of that pride, because of the exposure and really kind of understanding their own taste, and that's part of a maturing consumer, right? And that for me is an example of how there is pride now with the concepts that are being created in the region. And it's a bit conceptual, but it's something that we urge international companies not to ignore and not to undermine the local innovation that is happening. So my advice to them is actually research these local innovations and understand these local companies because they might be your best entry. Now, something you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago was the, the, the scale of the transformation that's going on in, in the Middle East. Just double click on that. What are we talking about? Private sector, public sector, both? The scale of the transformation is for me unprecedented in the region. And it's both in the private and the public sector. And a lot of these challenges have been festering for a while. So it's not like there's a new challenge that we've always had younger populations growing very fast. But I think the scale of the population now, I think the visibility of the region to the rest of the world, 
there is no option to do incremental steps. So a lot of the revenues are coming from the Gulf countries, from oil, and that oil is actually being invested in the neighboring countries. So that's predictable and, and stable and growing at a certain speed or, you know, a bit oscillating up and down. But your expenses are growing much faster because traditionally, most of the uh, investment is driven by the government. I think in the Gulf and some of the countries, 80 plus percent of the investment that is happening is actually driven by government or government-related entities. Yes, this is state capitalism. So by default, when this growth is, is actually slow and your expenses, which is employment and, and you know employing the people is actually going much, much faster. And in some countries, you're providing housing, you're providing some subsidies for local employment, you're providing other subsidies. It's creating a challenge that will bankrupt countries if there is not a step change. So that's why we're seeing this bold move. So you have that in the public sector. In the private sector, you also have a big transformation because a lot of the economy is actually dominated by family groups. The dominated is the wrong word, but they're actually led. It's very similar to what used to happen you know, in the US in the early part of the 20th century with a lot of the industrialists that were there. So they are the ones that were you know, risking their capital and investing in building industries, right? Banking, retail, real estate. A lot of these families today are actually at an age of like 50, 60 years old. And this is the difficult part. At the same time, going through a generation transition, which we know doesn't always work, right? I think after the third generation, the probability survives around 15%. So a lot of these businesses will not exist or are at threat of not existing. Uh, and now it's really about beating the odds for them. Uh, and so they really have to go through a very big transformation, both from a generation point of view, but also from a business point of view to be very competitive in a market that is increasingly uh, tougher to operate in. So that push in the private sector that is happening at the same time to all the companies, while the push for the public sector to move the burden of employment to creating much more of a fertile environment for businesses to flourish is quite a big change. And it's happening at the same time. Yeah, and I think this holds true across sectors. If you take industrial sectors, retail, consumer, banking, you see the private sector and the family-owned businesses taking more and more of an active role in order to drive the economy forward. So I think, as Ahmed mentioned, it is not sustainable for the government only to be the one investing, right? Any healthy economy going forward would have to have a healthy balance of government investments and private sector investments. Uh, and that's what drives also a lot of innovation, a lot of entrepreneurship. So the government cannot be the employer of choice for everyone. I think the private sector needs to take a, a much larger share on that front as well. Because due to demographics, we know what's going to happen to the population. And to your point, we can fairly well predict what's going to happen to government revenues. So, you know, it's fairly clear where this is leading unless these transformations are successful. But I'm very optimistic because if I look at what's happening, I mean, look at the venture capital space. I mean, people would laugh about this three, four years ago. It was nice to have, but it was not really a source of economic development, a source of innovation and so on. Today, look at it. And it's not just about Uber and Karim or about Amazon and Souk. It's about many, many other developments that we will hear of or from in the next four or five years. And the government has created that fertile environment from countries like Lebanon, that where the central bank allocated money for these VCs, to the UAE, where you have incubators that have been set up. People were skeptical about them, but we're starting to see the fruits 
of all these developments today. The same thing for the private sector. It's not anymore about creating their own companies, but they're actually investing in entrepreneurs, investing in ideas. So seeing this and seeing how this happened in such a speed, an industry that took maybe 30, 40 years to develop outside, that's developed here in literally five years. Let's not underestimate that. And this is what personally makes me very, very optimistic about the prospects of the region. So you just mentioned Souk there. Um, for people who, who aren't in the region, Abdella, I know you do a lot of work in, in retail. Just remind us of the Souk story. What, what is it and what happened? So Souk is the equivalent of uh, Amazon in the region, if you will, right? It's a marketplace where you can buy pretty much everything. Uh, was established a few years ago, was quite successful in terms of growth. It was still at the early stages of development, uh, selling a few products, mostly electronics, beauty and cosmetics and books. And it was acquired by Amazon in 2017. It was probably one of the largest deals here in the region. It shows also the, the importance of the region, you know, moving from an energy market to a consumer market. And you see a giant like Amazon prioritizing a deal here in the region. And since that deal, we have seen a lot of e-commerce platforms taking place. Noon is now the other uh, player. Uh, that is present in the market that was established here to compete with Souk and Amazon and other ventures coming from Rocket Internet that, you know, that are present uh, in the emerging markets like Namshi or Wadi in Saudi. I think a couple of weeks ago, we were at the World Economic Forum where the top 100 Arab startups were invited uh, and it was quite impressive. What struck me is the percentage of companies that are focused on technology. So digital and analytics were a massive share of these startups across industries in education, fintech, retail, advanced analytics, and digital. And that's just a great example that I think the youth bulge again can bring a lot if we lay out the infrastructure properly for them to innovate and create some really great concepts that can be exported then to Africa and to the rest of the world. So this all sounds very positive. I just want to make sure that we're not guilty of sort of glossing over some of the challenges. And again, if I'm a CEO looking at the region from the outside in, some of the stability issues and, and conflict issues are certainly going to be top of my mind when thinking about a, a strategy. What's your answer, Ahmed? How do you address that when that comes up? Of course, look, we're not blind to these challenges. And the way I look at it is very different. If I look back, I moved back to the region 16 years ago. And if I had a faint heart, there would be maybe three or four times between those last 16 years where I would have said, my God, the world is collapsing, I need to go. And the idea crossed my mind every single time, you know, be it in around 2004, then 2008, 2009, then really recently. And there were many things, revolutions, oil prices crashing and so on. So if you really look at it in three-year chunks, then it's not a region you should be investing in because you'll see those big too dips, much too much volatility, and it's, it's actually quite scary. But then if you step back a bit, and if you look at the much wider time frame, the growth that has happened is again unprecedented. I mean, just look at the country we're in, the port of Jabal Ali that was actually set up, and people said that's a crazy idea, and you know the region will never be as big, and so on. And look, it's one of the largest ports, most successful ports. If you look at the real estate market here, again, I'm just looking, just focusing just on the UE, and I can give examples in, in many other places. Again, people thought when the economic downturn happened, and there were many conflicts all around, that that's it, Dubai will never pick up. There will be empty homes, and look at the lights in this area, there is no light. <laughs> again, the stock of real estate probably doubled since then, and people are still coming and still buying. So I think we have to look at it from that lens. We have to look at the long term. At the same time, 
it's also important to take a leap of faith that these conflicts at some point in time, they have to be resolved. They will not benefit anyone and the youth will actually you know, get the employment. They will get excited with the new technology trends that are happening. They will build their own businesses. There will be a more fertile environment. We have to believe in this. I have to believe in this as a resident here and every citizen have to believe in this to bring this region to, to its full potential. If we are too skeptic and we fall into the trap of the geopolitical events, nobody will stay here and no one will invest in this market. But still, people are investing and we're still growing. So I'm optimistic. But you, so you concede that it's a, you know, it, you've got to take a long-term view, you've got to take a, a through-cycle mentality and you've got to be not afraid of a bit of volatility because you're going to get it. Exactly. You have to expect the volatility. You just have to be prepared to deal with it and prepare to deal with it in the way, you know, do you fire people when this happens? Do you close factories? Do you keep factories on? So that there would be just being very flexible in the mindset and also know that at some point in time, believe it will come back. And then just to add to that, I think instability or volatility has been there in this region forever. And that didn't prevent the great years of growth that has been here between 2003, 2015, I think double digit growth across the board. And at the same time, I think here we're talking again about the region, right? The region has pockets of instability, but it's not every country. I mean, here today, UAE is one of the safest countries in the world. Here again, we have to be very granular in our view of instability. And just as Ahmed said, uh, be able to read those and navigate through those times in a very smart way. Mm. On the topic of volatility, uh, let's talk a little bit about oil because clearly the oil price will move and this is still a very energy rich region and therefore oil has a big impact. Has the region managed to diversify away from oil and will it be able to? I think this is a question that has always been there. From before I came to the region 16 years ago, it's always on top of mind of all the governments, but the urgency was not there. So it was something important, it was something they knew they had to do, but it was not very urgent because oil prices were high enough, even with the decline, were high enough and were good enough to be able to pay for expenses and build reserves that are actually quite solid. Today, this urgency is at a scale that is much higher than it used to be before. That's why we see the push for diversification taken much more seriously. Look at Saudi today, the way they're opening up the market and the push they're actually doing to create industries to serve first the local consumer, but also to export. And we're going to see the fruits of that in the next five to 10 to 15 years. Look at Abu Dhabi again, the indices that they've built. Have we reached our objective? Of course not. Uh, will we reach our objective with the ambition that we're seeing? Most likely, yes. So this time it's for real. The urgency is there, you have no option. It's a one or zero outcome in this case. And I think everybody realizes that. But at the same time, I have to take a leap of faith and be optimistic that we'll do it. Otherwise, I will not be here in the region. So just double click for me on the government, the public sector transformation. Um, what sort of things are governments doing in the region? There are a number of initiatives that are happening and it's probably challenging to list most of them. I will start with the ones that are impacting the private sector quite a lot because I hear the complaints every day. Subsidies, right? Just taking out subsidies is one, one for me that is very, very obvious, be it on electricity prices, on gas prices. These are very, very difficult decisions because in many cases, this was the competitive advantage of the region in the private sector, right? Cheap I had cheap energy through electricity, industrial, I had cheap gas, 
great, uh, I will produce and I'm a superhero. So that's taken away because that's, that's also a cost on the government, but it's difficult in the short term for the private sector, but it's very important for the long-term competitiveness. Because now as a private sector, I'm forced to say, okay, if I don't have that competitive advantage, how can I adopt new technologies? How can I change my business model? How can I make my employees much more productive? I think the second part is, uh, you know, tax reforms in many places. And again, here mainly in the Gulf and less so in other countries where VAT has been introduced recently. And again, one benefit of it is create actually transparency on transactions. And it's actually quite good. It allows us now to have one single source of truth if I take the most uh, simple uh, benefit of it. Then there are other uh, parts which are quite important, which is about labor reforms. And if I take the example of a few, few of the countries like UAE, when the labor mobility has improved so much over the last 15 years. You know, before you would be locked into an employer, you can't leave to a competitor, your visa is, has a certain time frame, and today, more and more for highly educated and certain type of professional is actually quite mobile, as mobile as it could be in any other market and probably even more. And that for me is also one part that is quite uh, important. And we foresee more changes on the labor mobility part because I think that the region is very hungry to attract and keep talented people. So just before we run out of time, we've been through a, a number of challenges facing the region. Uh, in some ways, it feels like we're sort of, meeting, sort of approaching a moment of reckoning. It feels like governments certainly can see a moment of reckoning down the road, and they're responding to that. If I had to push you and say, are you optimists or pessimists, or are you strong optimists, medium optimists, mild optimists or pessimists, where would you put yourselves on that spectrum? So I'm definitely a strong optimist. Uh, I think when I look at the, the demographics uh, intrinsics that we have here in the region with the new consumers that will take these markets from energy markets to consumer markets or the talent that they offer with their entrepreneurship and the skill set that is coming up, governments that are taking bold steps towards diversification, private sector that is willing to take the torch and finally, I mean, natural resources that, that, that are still there to fund some of this diversification going forward. I'm definitely uh, optimistic. Obviously, I'm actually quite optimistic and I urge investors to think about this as they think with any risky investments that they actually have. You know, when you invest in a business, you know, if you're investing in a startup, there is no formula that will tell you that this is going to be successful or not. You take a leap of faith on the people that are there. You take a leap of faith on the ideas. And you basically say, you know, yes, there will be some challenges. We don't know how to fix them. But at some point in time, they will be fixed because if the idea is right and the people are right. And I urge investors to think exactly the same way. Either they believe that the reforms that are happening now are going to work and they, the idea of this region and what it can bring to the world is, uh, is something that they believe in, or they just simply don't take that leap of faith. So for me, it's just really about the leap of faith. Uh, as an individual also, I've committed my life here, so I'm definitely an optimist. Yes, it kind of goes back to, are you willing to look at the glass as half empty or half full? And th there's no right answer to that, you just need to decide. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you, Hamed and Abdullah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about the issues we discussed today, please visit mckinsey.com or if you prefer, download the McKinsey Insights app, which is available for Apple and Android. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. 
To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.